All right, if you open your Bible, uh, let's head on over to Philippians chapter number 2, uh, if you would. That's where we'll get started, and uh, then we're going to end up in a few different passages. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you've got a ribbon, uh, you can put yourself there. That will be toward the end of the service. Uh, but we're going to be moving through the New Testament primarily today, obviously, uh, for the obvious reason being that the church is a New Testament thing. And uh, we heard a little bit about this morning and how God had chosen uh, the Jews for a certain task, and He's chosen the church for a very similar task in this particular particular uh, day and age in which we live. And so over the last few months, you're aware of this. I've been talking a lot about it. I'm going through the process and we collectively are going through the process of fleshing out exactly what church is. And uh, it is an exciting study. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. There, there are a lot of things mulling around in my head. There are a lot of things I'm observing in Scripture that I'm working through personally, trying to understand. And, and uh, one of the things, and this may come in a sermon soon enough, but one of the things I'm noticing completely separate from the text at hand, but one of the things I'm noticing is just the, the size of churches in the New Testament. Oftentimes, I think we paint this improper picture, you know, because we read the book of Acts and, man, 3,000 and 5,000, and then we fail to see that Paul's writing to the church in the living room of of Apollos, uh, or of Aquila and Priscilla. And he's writing to the church in the house of this particular person or that particular person. And I think sometimes we have a different picture of what church is than what the Bible says church is. And uh, as I look out at our congregation right here, we are not the biggest church in Bakersfield, but I, I'm, I'm so thankful for the body of believers that God has put here. And then we get to do church together. We get to be the church together. And uh, I don't know how that translates up there. If there's just a handful of folks on a Wednesday night who want to get together and do a Bible study, it just, I don't know, it excites me as we get to take an honest look, uh, set aside all of our presuppositions and just look in the scripture and say what was the church of the New Testament era and uh, as I mentioned last week when you look at what the church is and was and should be there are a handful of really foundational almost I I call them automatic topics um, that you're going to need to address when you think about the church and we started last week with those automatic topics of the offices of the church the office of service and the office of leadership that God has given to the church and those are gifts um, to our congregation they're gifts meant to be used Um, you're supposed to use the gift of your pastors. You're supposed to use the gift of your deacons. Those are roles that are meant to be fulfilled uh, and meant to be fulfilled to the best of their ability. So uh, in the eyes of God, churches need those two things. And that's something that we didn't didn't talk about a lot last week, but church needs leadership. That's what he said. I know that Christ is the head of the church, but church needs leadership. So God gave them a a pastor and pastors to lead them. Church needs servants. Uh, And so God gave them that particular office. And I, I think about Christ in that, that he was the perfect example of both. He was the perfect example of a servant and of a leader. And uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse number 6, let's just see that real quick. Talking about Christ, it says, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. You want to talk about perfect leadership, you're going to come no closer, uh, no, no fuller picture than, than Jesus Christ himself. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, but at the same time, look at verse number 7. But he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a, what's the word? Servant, uh, and that again is the word diakonos or uh, uh, doulo, which is the verb uh, version of deacon. And uh, he was made in the likeness of men. And I mentioned this a bit last week, but I want to lean a little heavier on it this week. Pastor and deacons, yes, those are nouns. They're 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 people, but they're also verbs. They're they're things that people should be doing. Someone should deacon in our church, and someone should pastor in our church, and those are actions that are meant to be carried out within the body of believers. These are offices, or rather these offices hold significant structural purpose. Again, they're not foundational. I'm careful not to say that, but they are structurally significant in the church. A pastor, we talked about a bit Wednesday night, a pastor is the guy that's supposed to take this book and say, hey, church family, here's what God says. Here's the direction we're supposed to go. 
now let's go that direction. That's what a pastor is supposed to do. A deacon is therefore me- or then meant to be able to help the church accomplish those processes, uh, supposed to be able to help alleviate responsibilities, uh, supposed to be able to help alleviate the needs uh, and, and wants, not necessarily the wants, but the needs and the insufficiencies of the congregation. And so... Um, But that, again, is not the only set of instructions that God gives the church. In fact, it's far from it. God has given us other things to carry out or to obey. Uh, In fact, tonight's topic is far more than just a set of instructions. They actually rise to the level of ordinances. Now, that's not a word we use often. Um, we have rules in our house, but we don't have ordinances, okay? So it's, it's a word we're familiar with, but it might not be a word we know how to define. So what is uh, an ordinance? It's a word you're going to find all throughout Scripture. You're going to find um, there are places in the New Testament that reference the entire Old Testament as ordinances. Um, there are sometimes, even in the New Testament, where ordinances are mentioned. Obviously, tonight's topic is, is no exception to that. Sometimes there are even times where uh, traditions of men are, are recognized as ordinances, um, but it, Particularly, or, or uh, in, in, by way of definition, the word ordinance means this, a righteous command. And it's way more than a simple suggestion to the church. Uh, it's something that God has given to the church to do, and he expects them to hold on to it. You're going to see uh, in our text tonight, until he comes back, we're going to show the Lord's death until he returns. Um, now, just again, by way of introduction, would you go to Colossians chapter number 2, verse number 14? Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 14. A beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for us as it relates to ordinances. Colossians chapter 2 verse 14. Scripture says this of Christ, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Now, I don't have time to fully unpack and explain what ordinances were and what ordinances weren't, the moral laws, the, you know, the, the social laws, and so forth. But here's what the, the Scripture is saying, is that Jesus took those righteous commands, uh, primarily of the Old Testament, and he nailed them to the cross, and he freed us from those responsibilities and from those, uh, those holy commands uh, in order to be able to access God. But what you're also going to find in the New Testament is while he removed the handwriting of ordinances is that while he freed us from that, he then turned around and gave us two that he expects us to follow, two that he expects us to hold onto to remain intact as his church, two holy commands. And obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but I I would assume most in the room know, but you might not. Um, Those two ordinances, according to the New Testament, are the observance of the Lord's Supper, which we'll talk about last, and then the observance of baptism of the saints. Those are things God told the church. These are not just suggestions for you to consider. These are ordinances for you to obey. They are holy expectations and demands that God has placed upon his church. Again, freeing us from, hey, you can't wear, you know, linen that's of two, two materials. Hey, you can't do this and you can't eat that. Uh, He freed us from those, but then placed two particular ones on top of his church and said, hey, these are things I expect for you to do until I return. And so we're going to look at those this evening. And uh, one, yeah, there's an equal part academic, but then there's the other side of of let's make sure that while we're participating in either the baptism of the saints or the Lord's Supper, that we're participating in them with the same heart Jesus would have toward them. Uh, They're not just these things like, oh, yeah, someone's getting baptized. I guess I'll check Facebook. Church is pretty much over. Or, hey, it's the Lord's Supper, so I'm just going to get up and move around, or I'm not going to show up because it's not that important to me. No, I want us to take a look at what God says and how we ought to view these same ordinances that he has given to the church as responsibilities to carry over. So let's pray, and uh, we'll get into our study tonight. Lord, I, I need your help tonight. I pray that we would 
be good students today. I pray that, Father, as we unpack these truths, we've, some have seen these, some have not seen these. And uh, so, Lord, for those in the room who maybe this is a little bit of review, I pray that our hearts would be open uh, to receive these truths. There's a lot that can be said and a lot that I'd love to say. Um, but, Lord, I ask for you to allow me the, the liberty to only say what you'd have me say. And I pray that each and every one of us would listen with open ears and that we'd receive this truth. Lord, I know that it's another preaching service in another day, but God, there's, there's real beauty to be had in these scriptures. And I pray that we would hit the reset in our hearts and receive again these truths and this scripture as you've chosen this concept of preaching to your saints this, this evening. So bless us, Lord. Be with us as we'll take the Lord's Supper at the end of service. And uh, God, just guide us and bless us in a special way we ask in Christ's name. Amen. One of the defining attributes of the church is that it, it must be done, and here's a key word, together. It must be done together. Uh, the assembly of the believers is, is the definition. Uh, a called out assembly of the believers is the definition of, of what church is. Christianity is a team sport, if you will. And just like there are positions that need to be played in terms of the offices, there are also practices and functions that God expects that family of believers to carry out collectively. Uh, these two ordinances specifically are designed by God intentionally to not be done, listen, alone. They're supposed to be done as a body of believers. And honestly, that's interesting to me because so much of Christianity is a personal and private life that relates us to our God in intimate and private ways. Our prayer closet, our time in scripture, our personal relationship with him. Those are all very private things. You do that at home. You don't do that on the platform in front of folks. Uh, That's something you do in private. And yet, when it comes to the ordinances, they are intentionally public. They're not private. They're not things you do in the mountains by yourself. They're not things you do in a prayer closet by yourself. They are designed, yes, to relate us to God, but in a large, very uh, real way, they are designed to relate us to each other. They are designed for us to be able to display almost like a billboard certain truths and certain absolutes that God wants us to show uh, until he comes. Both of these ordinances are intentionally public displays of truths that they represent. Think about baptism just briefly, and we'll take time and unpack each of them individually. But baptism is a display outwardly of a salvation that happened inwardly. It's God's people. If you've been saved, you are publicly identifying as a billboard, if you will, to the cross and to the empty tomb. You're also testifying that someday there'll be a resurrection that you'll be a part of. And we'll see the verses on that as well. But baptism, in a very real way, shows the congregation, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And I can't tell you. Have you ever noticed? I'm sure you've noticed. You've definitely noticed. When someone gets baptized, normally that will spur a few weeks of folks getting baptized. You notice that? You know why that is? That's by design. Not my design, God's design. Because what happens is folks see people get baptized and think, I I can't tell you the number of times a visitor or a lost person comes and says, I want to get baptized. Are you sure you're saved? Oh, I didn't even know that was a thing. Okay, well, let's talk about that. And it creates this opportunity for them to wonder, a lot like the the folks that say, hey, what what must I do to be baptized, right? I want to get baptized too. Well, have you believed on the Lord Jesus with all your heart? It's a public display of the cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb. You're buried with him in in death and you're raised with him in resurrection. It's, It's not a private, quiet thing. It's supposed to be something that is a billboard to the grace and mercy of God. The Lord's Supper is much the same thing. You are gathering to remember. 1 Corinthians, we don't have to turn there. Well, if you want to put a ribbon, I've got my ribbon in 1 Corinthians. You can put a ribbon in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. We'll be back there for the last part of the service tonight. But in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, it says, For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do shew the Lord's death till he comes. 
God's expectation is, as it relates to the Lord's Supper is you and I are showing the Lord's death. We are displaying his death, his body, his suffering till he returns, until the end of all this. And these are not private. They are personal, but they are public and intentionally public. And so tonight I want to examine these two ordinances and their importance. Again, keeping in mind that while Jesus has freed us from the um, blotted out the handwriting of ordinances, he then places us and reinstates, not reinstates, but instates two binding commands that he expects us as a church to carry forth. And uh, the two things he asked us to do are, like I said, baptism and remembering him through the Lord's table. So let's lean into the idea of baptism. You can go to Mark chapter number 16 if you would. And we'll have a lot of Bible verses. And so I'll try to give you a heads up um, on turning there. But uh, if, you're, if you want to, I'm going Mark 16, Acts chapter 2, and Colossians chapter 2. So Mark chapter 16, Acts chapter 2, and Colossians chapter 2. As it, as it uh, relates to baptism, I really do want to start, and this is a bit of a strange way. I don't normally start with a negative view of something, but I'm going to start with myths, um, false teachings as it relates to baptism. Some of them are very egregious. Some of them, the last one isn't particularly egregious, but I do think that it is erroneous. I do think that it is incorrect. Um, the first one is they, there are folks who believe that baptism is a means of receiving saving grace. There are those who teach, and it's, it, it, the theological term for it is baptismal regeneration. You're regenerated at salvation, and, and you get that regeneration by getting baptized and that's just not what the bible teaches that is not scripture in any way shape or form now there's some verses if you take them out of context read them upside down late at night after eating too much pizza you might get to that but the fact of the matter is a simple reading of the text is not going to get you to the place where you believe that because i was baptized i therefore am saved so baptism is not a means of of salvation mark chapter 16 verse 16 says this he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved and, and that kind of person says, see, you got to get baptized and believe so you can be saved. But notice the clarity of the, the rest of the verse. But he that believeth not, hey, you got baptized, but you don't believe, shall be damned. And we'll read in 1 Peter a little later on that it is the answer of a good conscience toward God. It's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but an answer of a good conscience toward God. Listen, every single time, another thought about this is, is every single time you find uh, baptism in the New Testament, it is on the heels of salvation. Someone gets saved, now they got to get baptized. The, the eunuch or the jailer, all of these folks were then baptized after the fact of their conversion. In fact, if baptism gets us to heaven, then the thief on the cross has no chance. Because he was never baptized. He died there on that cross. It is a matter of belief that relates us to God in terms of salvation. Acts chapter number 2 verse 41 does tell us this. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. It came after the fact. And uh, the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And so salvation comes first and baptism comes second. Now that, very practically speaking, may create a little bit of a conflict for some folks in this room. And I don't mean to make you uncomfortable, but it may very well create a conflict. If you got baptized as a kid and then got saved... Well, I mean, you got it backwards. Uh, baptism always comes after salvation. And you're saying, Pastor, do I need to get rebaptized? I, well, I mean, I think the scripture's pretty clear. Your first baptism didn't count. You didn't publicly identify with something that never happened to you. And uh, it's just like let my son slipping on my wedding ring some random Tuesday. It, uh, it doesn't make him married if he puts it on. It symbolizes for you as witnesses that, hey, I am married. Um, but it, it doesn't symbolize anything to someone who's not been married. And so understand that picture there. So myth number one, baptism. It, the, the myth is that baptism saves and that's just not scriptural. The myth number two, and I think that this is, 
is relevant. And that's kind of why I start with these three kind of myths because they are disjointed from each other, but they're all, they're all error and they're all false t- teachings. So while they don't relate to each other, they do relate in terms of being wrong. And the second myth is that baptism is by sprinkling. And uh, that's just not what scripture says. Colossians chapter 2 verse number 12 says this, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Could you imagine if we buried bodies like Catholic people baptize? <laughs> Throw that body out. <laughs> Graveyards would be incredibly uncomfortable places to go. That's, that's all I'm saying. A little handful of dirt and we're covered. No, in fact, it, it doesn't even take a scholarly brain to know, and I don't mean that in a condescending way, it doesn't even take a scholarly understanding of Scripture. The word baptize, the Greek word baptizo, literally means to submerge. Jesus came up out of the water. If he came up out of the water and Catholics teach he was sprinkled, he was coming up out of somebody's hands. It's just not, doesn't, it doesn't work. It's just not scriptural. And then there's a third, and this one I, I wouldn't call heresy, but I would call it error. Um, there are those who teach that baptism is how you join a church. And uh, again, they're... There's no scripture for that anywhere. They'll take some from Acts chapter, I believe, number two, and uh, they were saved, they were baptized, they were added to the church. And somehow baptism and added to the church are the same thing, but salvation is its own thing. Saved, baptized, added. Well, these two are the same. That one's not. Again, baptism doesn't relate us to each other as much as it relates us to God. And that's what baptism is. It's a picture, it's a symbol of what Jesus did for us. So let's take a moment and talk a little about what baptism actually is. And uh, Colossians chapter 2 and then Romans chapter 6. If you're going to turn to 1, go to Romans 6. We're going to, do, we're going to actually read probably 15 verses or so in uh, Romans chapter number 6. Colossians chapter 2 is a good place to go. And then Romans chapter number 6 is where we're going to spend a little bit of time stretching our legs this evening. What is baptism then? We learned a couple things that's not... And that's not an inclusive list. There's some crazy uh, beliefs out there regarding baptism. I just wanted to address some of the more um, relevant ones. But number one, what is baptism? Well, baptism is a means of identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We just read that verse in Colossians 2. Buried with him in baptism. You're identifying with the death, right? And here's kind of the symbol. Here's the water, here's the body, his death, his burial, and his someday, well, no, his resurrection and our someday uh, resurrection. It says, buried with him in baptism, where also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And so baptism is us identifying as Jesus followers. And you're going to see that has more than just a, more than just like a, hey, I put a ring on and I symbolize I'm his. It has some real discipleship connotations. And that's what we're going to find in Romans 16 or Romans 6. Number two, baptism is a way of identifying with his coming, uh, rather with our com- his coming and our resurrection. I don't, I don't want to say his coming resurrection. He's already been resurrected. I keep mixing those words up. I apologize. But baptism is a way of identifying with his return and our someday resurrection. If the Lord tarries his coming, we're all going in the ground. But baptism is a symbol that, hey, someday I'm coming up out of the ground just like Jesus did. And so Romans 6 is going to give us that picture as well. Romans 6, 1 says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And there's some context there. I know we're picking up in the middle of a sentence, but we're going to read a bunch of context so, so we didn't have time to back up to chapter 5. Verse number 2 says, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? This is speaking to the discipleship of, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, and now there's grace, and I don't want to continue in sin. Verse number 3, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, 
that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also shall walk in the newness of life. And uh, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, there's two things happening here. One, there is, a re- there is a, an awakening of our soul, talking about at salvation. But there's also these undertones of a someday bodily resurrection. But it's saying, hey, your spirit's coming alive. And someday your, your physical body, you're not going to stay in the ground either. He, in, in his burial, was the first fruits of the dead. He was the first to come alive, but he won't be the last. We are identifying with his resurrection and our, our, our spiritual resurrection and our someday physical resurrection. But let's keep reading, and we're going to notice in verse number 6 through 12, number 3, baptism is a way of committing our life to discipleship and fellowship. Uh, we are symbolizing the burial of the old man as well. So look at verse 6. Knowing this... That our old man is crucified with him, right? Uh, Crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed and that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we, we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. And so it's more than just a, hey, I got saved. It's a, hey, I got saved, and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, reckoning myself dead un, uh, unto Christ. My, my old man is buried, and I'm a new creature. All things are become new, and I'm a follower of Jesus. And that's not a profession of perfection, because n- none of us are going to be able to do that. But it is a profession of saying, hey, I'm new and I'm different. I'm, I'm a child of Jesus. Now, baptism doesn't make me new and different. It makes me obedient and it's a symbol of what Jesus did for me, that he was buried and that he rose and we will be buried and we're burying our old man and we're now alive unto God and now we're receiving eternal life and we'll never perish. And even if our body perishes, we're still going to be alive. It's this beautiful uh, picture all around. So number four, would you go to Matthew chapter number 28? You might recognize this as the Great Commission. Matthew chapter number 28, baptism is a part of the Great Commission and the commandment to the church. Uh, I am 100%, our church family knows this, I'm, I'm all for soul winning. I love when folks get saved. That's not the end of the Great Commission. And uh, the scripture is very clear. That's part of the Great Commission. Uh, but baptism is as well, and so is discipleship. Uh, Matthew 28, 19, and 20 says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. You go preach the gospel to them. Once they receive that preaching, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now, that is, that is significant. We'll talk about what true baptism is and what it is not. That is a non-negotiable part. It has to be in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And then, notice the last part of the Great Commission. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. That's my hope for Kern River Valley. That's my hope for Bakersfield, that we can go and teach all nations. And then once they get saved, man, let's baptize them. And then once they get baptized, now they need to be discipled and taught. And they need to be taught whatsoever things he's commanded them. But again, baptism is absolutely a part of the Great Commission. And uh, we're not just supposed to lead, lead people to the Lord and leave them alone. We're supposed to baptize them. We're supposed to disciple them and let them follow and learn the things of Jesus. So number five, baptism. Baptism is meant to be, would you go to 1 Peter chapter 3, go all the way to the back, you find the book of Hebrews, you're not far away. 
Baptism is meant to be an answer of a purified conscience toward God. Like, hey, I got saved, and you have made me new, and so I'm going to obey you and do the next thing you tell me to. And so after salvation, the next thing he tells me to do is get baptized. Then he's got a whole book of things to guide me into truth, and I want to walk in those things, but I want to have a good conscience toward God. And he saved me. Now what does he want me to do? He wants to get baptized? I'm going to do that. That's the answer of a good conscience toward God. Look at 1 Peter chapter number 3 and verse number 21. And this is a great verse that gets used so out of context, but it, it's so clear. You just keep reading the rest of the verse. It says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Now, I had a conversation with a guy. Some of you have heard this story. I had a conversation with a guy who just like, he latched onto that and wouldn't let it go. And he's like, see, baptism saves us. Baptism saves us. Well, there's a parenthetical statement right next door that very much so clears that up. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It doesn't remove your sins, but the, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's this obedience that says, hey, Lord, you've already saved me. Be baptized for the remissions of sin. And because I've been saved, now in honor of that salvation, I want to be baptized because my sins have been remitted. But now I'm obeying what you tell me to do. And I want to follow this second part of the Great Commission. You're answering. Your conscience is clear before God. You saved me. You asked me to identify and follow you. That's the method you chose. Okay, I'll do it. Oftentimes when I, when I talk to folks who are newly converted or I get to win, win someone to Christ, I talk to them about baptism, and I, I use the example of a wedding ring. And the reason for that is I always get to this point and I say, now could you imagine if you married your husband or you married your wife and they say, hey, listen, I'm so glad to be your husband, but I don't want to put a ring on. I don't want anybody to know that I'm married to you. Well, there's something wrong with that. Now, I get it. Some works, uh, some, some labor fields you know, require a rubber ring. For the most part, I wear a rubber ring. I have my metal ring on. But sometimes you don't wear it for that reason. But if a husband says, I don't want anybody to know, that's exactly the same thing as a Christian saying, hey, you've saved me, but my conscience, I'm not going to answer clearly. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to be up in front of people. I don't want to be the billboard for you that I'm yours, that I'm your follower. And there's something very wrong with that. Uh, and that's going to hinder any Christian in their growth. So let me just say this, and this is, that's, that's kind of the, the, the nutshell of baptism. But let me say this before we move to the Lord's Supper. If you have never been scripturally baptized, then you need to be. So how would you define scripturally baptized? Well, it's all the stuff we just talked about. Number one, you have to be baptized by immersion after salvation. Okay? Uh, you need to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And you need to be baptized as a symbol of, not a means for, salvation. And so if you were a little kid and you got baptized in the Catholic Church as a means of salvation, then your baptism is not, not scripturally recognized. If you got baptized in the Pentecostal oneness movement, you were baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit and not the name of the Father, not the name of the Son, then your baptism doesn't seem legitimate uh, according to Scripture. If you were sprinkled or you were saved before or you were baptized before your salvation, these are all things you're going to have to work out your own self, but God desires for you to be that billboard and show his death, his burial, and his resurrection through the symbol of baptism, the ordinance, I should say, of baptism. So that's righteous command number one. Number two, uh, Jesus has commanded his church to partake in what is called the Lord's Supper. Um, let's Let's go to Luke chapter number 22, and then uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we're going to find the vast, vast majority of our content. Not the only place in Scripture, it's just a very succinct passage that includes it all. <clears throat> the Lord's Supper was initiated during the Last Supper. 
uh, with Jesus Christ. And if you've been a part of our, um, our Easter, uh, we do a, a little bit of a Last Supper, Lord's Supper thing over the last few years. Uh, you know some of this to be true. It was instituted that final night as Jesus gathered with his disciples in the upper room, celebrating the Passover of Egypt. When God's people, the Jews, came out of bondage of Egypt, they, every year uh, they would hold this feast of the Passover. And as that meal ended, that final night, that final supper before Jesus' crucifixion, at the end of that meal, Jesus, forming a new covenant, instituted a new supper um, and, and giving us something new to commemorate. No longer are we commemorating the exodus of Egypt for the people of God, but rather we are commemorating this newly kept feast of far more significance than just freedom from bondage from Pharaoh, uh, Jesus is instituting this last, uh, this rather this Lord's Supper as a way of commemorating man's freedom from sin, this new covenant through his blood. All scripture that you probably recognize at least some if you've been around for the Lord's Supper before. And the thing I notice about the Lord's Supper is it's not elaborate. It's actually quite simple. When you think about the, the, the Passover meal, and we've done some of those things, that's quite elaborate. There's a lot of ingredients. There's a lot of steps. There's a lot of, you know, you got to wear a certain set of clothing. you got to keep your staff in your hand. There's a bunch of things going on in that particular uh, elaborate feast. But when it comes to the Lord's Supper, what he instituted, he really just used two very common things. He used bread and he used the wine that night. Luke chapter number 22 verse 19 says this, And he took bread and gave thanks, and break it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now understand, this is, pri- this is pre the crucifixion of Jesus, the night before. Uh, it says, Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. So this is a new covenant, a new testament, a new promise, a new celebration, a new thing to remember. As the Jews would hold feasts, many of them throughout the year, this was the one Jesus gave to his saints and to his church. Now think about it, and we're going to head over to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11. By the time Paul comes on the scene, obviously Jesus has already died. He's already been buried. He's already risen. He's already ascended to the Father. The church is in full swing. It's growing out of Jerusalem. Pentecost has already happened. Then Paul comes on the scene later in the book of Acts. And even later than that, after his missionary journeys, he writes the letter to the church at Corinth. And uh, the, the practice of the Lord's Supper is well established, well practiced in the churches uh, of the Lord. Um, but in Corinth specifically, um, as was normally their case, they need a little bit of clarity. <laughs> they need a little bit of guidelines. They need a little bit of help. What they're doing, they're, they're doing, but they're not necessarily doing it all right. And so um, part of that instruction that Paul gives in the letter of 1 Corinthians um, is to address that the church is abusing the Lord's Supper. That, that yes, they're doing it. They're coming together to eat, but they're not coming together to eat the Lord's Supper. They're doing it incredibly wrong. And so we actually find a lot of really helpful guidelines in this. I don't want to say, I mean, it certainly is a rebuke, so I'll just use the word. It's a rebuke to that church to say, here's the right way to do it. And in, in hearing that list, we can find some really important truths about what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be to us as well. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, and just plug along with me. We're going to go verse by verse for, through the rest of this chapter for the most part. Uh, And we're going to learn some things. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 says this, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. Now, that is not an instruction, that is a rebuke. And that matters. That sentence structure matters because it's going to come up later on. He isn't saying, hey, when you come together, don't come together for the better. He's saying when you come together, you're coming together not for the better. You're coming together for the worse. So please remember that. That has some bearing on later on when he says you come together, but it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. It's a rebuke. It's not a set of instructions. He's rebuking them for not coming together for the right reason. So uh, verse number 18, 
For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it. Now remember, understand, this whole chapter, you're going to see from context, he is talking and he's instructing and he's rebuking them about their practices as it revolves around the Lord's Supper. So he's saying, when you come together in the church, I hear there's divisions among you, and I partly believe it. You're dividing even at the Lord's Supper. You're not doing it correctly as a church. And I believe what I hear about you, I believe is to be true. Um, You're doing it wrong. You're doing it incorrect. Verse number 19. For there must be also heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. He says, so these things are going to happen and people are going to abuse it. Well, now you're going to know who you should and shouldn't follow as a teacher. Verse 20, again, is a rebuke, not a set of instructions. When ye, uh, when ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. So again, he's not saying, hey, when you come together, don't eat the Lord's Supper. He's saying, when you're coming together, you're not coming together to eat the Lord's Supper. You're not doing it right. I, I'm not praising you. When you come together, you come together not for the good, but for the evil. You're, you're missing this. You're messing it up. Um, verse number 21. He says, for in eating. So they are gathering for this. And he's saying, when you're gathering, you're doing it wrong. For in your eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper. And one is hungry and another is drunken. Could you imagine if we showed up to the, the service tonight and uh, you were like, man, you're pumped about the Lord's Supper. And, and, and you know, then you look up and you see Brother Escobar just laid out on the altar and he's got cracker crumbs all over him and he's got juice spilled. He's like, man, that was awesome. So good, Pastor. I love this service. Every one of us would be grossly offended. Like, what are you doing, man? You, I can't drink another thing. I'm so full. You missed it. This isn't a buffet, Brother Escobar. That's not what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be. That's what he's saying. When you come together, you're dividing. Some of you are leaving gluttonly full. Some of you are leaving drunk. Some of you, you, I don't understand this. You're not coming together for the better. You're coming together for the worse. You're not coming together to partake of the Lord's Supper and remember his body. You're doing it wrong, is what he's saying. Because it had one reason. Look at it in verse number 22. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? I, shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. In, in doing this, they were, it seems like from that verse that they were letting the more wealthy come and they were going to eat and then the poor people were going to eat later. And he's saying, listen, you, have your buffet in your house. Have your, 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 your full-on drink as much you know, as, as the, the fruit of the vine as you want to. Do it at your house. But when you come together, that's not what this is about. This isn't to feed you. This is for you to remember my sacrifice. So if you've ever left the Lord's Supper, you know, thinking, you know, I, I, you know maybe you're new here and you're like, oh, man, we got supper tonight. It's going to be great. And they hand you a cracker and a tiny thimble of juice. And you're like, well, that was a ripoff. <laughs> it's not to fill you. It's supposed to be for a remembrance of what he's done. So if you leave hungry, go to Carl's Jr., okay? That's not what the Lord's Supper is about, is what he's saying. you got houses to eat in. Eat your food before you come. Don't come and get full up on the Lord's Supper. Um, again, this is a super important truth. So let's learn five different things about the Lord's Supper that are found right here in this famous passage of instruction. Number one, the Lord's Supper is supposed to be done in gathering. Look at verse number 20 again. Uh, And it says, when ye come together, therefore into one place. And then he offers them the rebuke. You're not doing it right. You're not doing it for the sake of the Lord's Supper. And you ought to be. But the expectation is still there. And they're still eating. But the expectation is that they would come together for the Lord's Supper. Um, They're supposed to, again, they're supposed to not get drunk. And they're not supposed to be gluttons on it. But they are supposed to partake in this sacred meal together. Look at verse 23, if you would. He says, for I have received of the Lord 
that which also I delivered unto you. So Jesus, here's what Paul's saying. Jesus gave me what I already gave you about the Lord's Supper. I already told you, but let me remind you. Uh, it says in verse 23, let's read it again. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Here's what I delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup. And when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. And this is the second thing we're going to learn about the Lord's Supper, is that the Lord's Supper is supposed to represent the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's not supposed to fill your, you know, your stomach and satiate your thirst. It's supposed to cause you to remember uh, the Lord's uh, suffering. And so that bread represents his body that's broken for us. And that, that wine, that juice, represents his blood that was shed for us now we don't have time and i really thought about going back but i mean it takes we have to read the entire hebrews 9 and hebrews 10 we did that i believe it was two years ago when we talked about the lord's supper uh, the last time and we we walked through the the the, the ninth chapter and the tenth chapter of hebrews and all the way back into the psalms and we find from that that lesson and if you want the lesson i can give you the, the recording for it but we find that the body represents the obedience of jesus christ and that his blood represents his perfect sacrifice he was perfectly obedient and that's what we remember in his body and that his blood was this perfect sacrifice offered once and for all, not the blood of bulls and goats, but this once and for all sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. And so we learn, this is not just to feed you. This is supposed to remind you of what Jesus did. Next, we learn, no doubt, one of the most important uh, truths as it relates to uh, the Lord's Supper, and it's why we do it. Ver, uh, number uh, 25, as we continue on, we learn that this, the reason for the Lord's Supper is remembrance. It says, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. You think about, there are a lot of things people call funerals, right? Funerals, they call it, you know, uh, a wake or a remembrance of life. Um, Jesus gave us one thing to remember him by. Uh, he didn't give us a statue or a painting of him because he knew we would worship it, um, because that's just in the nature of man. But he did give us this symbol of what he did for us. And as oft as you eat and as oft as you drink, our goal, our stated purpose is to remember what Jesus did for us. And that's one of the reasons. And, and I'm not even going to ask you to forgive me. I'm just going to ask you to understand me. Um, when we do the Lord's Supper, I really don't want a lot of folks getting up and moving around and talking and things of that nature. And here's why. If we were having a funeral for your mom... You wouldn't want people getting up and using the restroom and, you know, moving around. You'd want it to be sober and somber. And I think we ought to approach the same remembrance of the Lord Jesus in a, in a really respectful way. And so if you've got to use the restroom, do it during the invitation. But once we start using the, doing the Lord's Supper, I really am. And, and I, don't, I, I feel bad when I, when I have to do that. So don't help me. Don't do it, okay? Uh, I really do want that to be a sober time. I want that to be something we can stop. We can shut everything out. We don't need to hear the back door. We're, we're sober, and we're remembering his sacrifice and remembering his body because it is a, it's supposed to be a time of remembrance. Uh, the fourth thing we're going to learn is that this meal is showing of the Lord's death uh, is meant to be carried out from this generation forever. Uh, look at verse number 26. This is similar to what Jesus said. For as oft as you drink this, uh, or for as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do shew the Lord's death on, or till he comes. It's this billboard that's supposed to stay until Jesus comes back. It's the church remembering what he did, showing what he did. And it, it's, it's fascinating. If you wanted to read, I could give you some literature on it. Um, the, there, there's quite a bit of writing about the first century. So after the apostles die off, the apostolic age, you get into this early church age. And there's quite a bit of writing from uh, non-believers about what they think the Lord's Supper was. They are super confused about it. In fact, I believe his name is Justin the Martyr. He's the first Christian apologist after the apostles. And he writes to 
one of the, uh, the Caesars about the Lord's Supper. And he's, they, they completely misconstrued it. And he writes and says, hey, this is what it's supposed to be. And we're gathering together to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Obviously, that's not canon scripture, but it's really, I mean, it's, it's probably more credible than anything we have about George Washington. Um, just some incredible writings about what this thing was. And it was supposed to be this billboard to the world. They were supposed to see us and say, what are you all doing? Well, let me tell you. Just like when a lost person looks at baptisms and says, well, I want to do that. What is it? Well, let me tell you about Jesus. It's this billboard that shows his death until he comes. And then lastly, number five, we're going to find through verses 27 and 31. It demands, the Lord's Supper demands our purity. And practically speaking, this is one of the best parts um, as far as it relates to us and our our relationship with God. It's a huge blessing because it demands that we be right with him. Um, And you know exactly what I'm talking about. It demands that we be right with him and right with others. Let's look at verse 27. And we normally read this at the end of invitation, but we'll read it right now. It says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of body, the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. There is this expectation, I think I'll use that word, as far as it relates to this particular ordinance that God says, if you're going to take it, take it with a right heart. Be right with your brother and sister. Be right with your spouse. Be right with your children. Be right with your church family. Don't, don't just, well, you know, curse we men and bless we God. No, 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 don't do that. Before you take of this supper, ha- have a clean heart and, and purified hands. Uh, make sure that your heart is right with each other. This meal and baptism matter to God. And he's called us to celebrate these ordinances together as a church. And what's unique, again, so I, I don't want to beat the horse again or beat the drum again, but the idea is you can pray at home. Praise the Lord for that. You can sing on the lake. You can listen to preaching in the car. But you can't have church in those places. And one of the primary reasons is you don't do the ordinances there. You don't have the offices there. You don't have the actual practical outpouring of what church is supposed to be in those places. Church is meant to be, and some of the things God input into the church, structurally speaking, are meant to force us to a gathering, force us to come together. When you come together, he says, it's not for the good, it it should be, and that, that ought to be how it is for us. There's offices in the church, there's ordinances in the church that call us away from the common into something that's supposed to be sacred. And I get it, we are not... Um, a liturgical, you know, faith system. We don't have a lot of, you know, you know, religious rites and, you know, all these different things where we have to. And, and so sacred might feel like a little bit of a weird word to you, but it shouldn't. And I get we don't have a bunch of, you know, um, symbolism and things like that as Baptists, but we do have this and this is sacred. It's not supposed to be common. It's not supposed to be casual. You're not supposed to just fumble in after an argument with someone and be like, I'm going to take the Lord's Supper. I mean, even this, this morning, I had to apologize to someone. I didn't do it because I had the Lord's Supper tonight, but if I hadn't have done it, I wouldn't be able to take the Lord's Supper tonight because that's just how important this is. There, there needs to be a purity in your heart as you partake in this because we're remembering the Lord's death till he come. And so in a few moments, we're going to pray. And after we pray... If your heart is still not right with God or you don't have the opportunity to make it right with the person that you've wronged, then my recommendation, my stern recommendation to you is that you don't take the Lord's Supper. You'd be far better off skipping it this month and starting again next month than you would be to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus and to be sick and or uh, sleep, as Scripture says. So I know there's a lot of head knowledge here, but there's also a lot of heart application. These things, this and this, are two ordinances he placed us under. 
holy requirements that God expects us to carry forth until he returns. We're supposed to carry the Great Commission until he returns, and we're supposed to show the Lord's death until he returns. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get ready to partake. The deacons will be uh, prepared in just a moment. And like I said, if you need to use a restroom, now would be the time. But let's pray.